The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick. This episode, as the last several, is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. And now we can add they are also accredited. You can learn more about them at cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. Jared Bumpers is the Director of Student Life and Events and serves as Assistant Professor of Preaching and Ministry at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Prior to joining the team at Midwestern, Jared served for over a decade as a student pastor, then as an associate pastor of preaching at a church in Southwest Missouri, uh, Crossway Baptist Church. He's also served as an interim pastor and spoken at numerous conferences throughout the United States. Uh, Jared holds a PhD in Christian preaching from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. His doctoral research, research was focused on the hermeneutic and homiletic of John Albert Broadus, and that is who we're going to be talking about today on the Covenant Podcast. So we want to welcome you back to the Covenant Podcast, Dr. Bumpers. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you guys for having me. I'm, I'm excited to join you. Well, Dr. Bumpers, I'm going to start us off on the first question. Could you just give us a biographical sketch of John Brodus and who he was? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. So uh, John Albert Brodus is most well known for his uh, textbook on preaching, a treatise on the preparation and delivery of sermons, which was published in 1870. He also wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew um, that was highly acclaimed when it came out. And so he's known for, for those two things. But but I'll go back a little bit and start with uh, his childhood, his upbringing, his education, and how he, he became a homiletician and a New Testament scholar. So he was born in, in Virginia, in Culpeper County, Virginia, in 1827. Uh, his dad served in the Culpeper militia and was known as uh, Major Broadus in the area. And Broadus attributes uh, most of his uh, most of his early childhood education to his father and then one of his older sisters uh, named Martha. Uh, he says that they they shaped him. Uh, Robertson also A.T. Robertson, uh, New Testament scholar in his own right, was Broadus's son-in-law. Uh, A.T. Robertson married uh, one of Broadus's daughters, and Robertson also attributes Broadus's mother, whose name was Nancy Broadus, uh, to, to influencing Broadus's personality, his sense of humor. And so his family at a young age shaped him. He also, uh, Robertson says he had uh, real uh, educational advantages in his childhood. So he had some, some really good teachers, uh, had a, a a teacher by the name of Albert Tut, and then in his teens, a high school teacher named Albert Sims. And both of them uh, helped shape him at a young age, gave him a desire for learning and education. And so when he when he graduated high school, he wanted to do further education, but was was not able to pay for it at the time. And so uh, he, he did some teaching in order to save funds to, to continue and pursue his education. So he did that uh, for, for a couple years. And then after teaching, he he went to the University of Virginia to study. And it's interesting is uh, is he's is he's contemplating uh, further educational studies. He has a friend who writes to him and asks him if he's ever thought about preaching. Has he ever considered ministry? And, and it's ironic that in 18, 1846, so Broadus is still a young man, 19 years old, and he said he tells his friend, I'm not cut out for ministry. So Broadus, I'll, I'll back up and say Broadus was converted at 16 in, in a revival uh, in, uh, in Culpeper County, in the Culpeper uh, Courthouse, which is where M Mount Pony Church met. There was a protracted meeting. Uh, he fell under conviction, uh, was converted. Um, 
and uh, the passage that was that was repeated to him uh, was, "All the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out." And Broadus was converted; uh, Spirit opened his eyes at that moment, and so he was baptized, joined the church as a young man. And when he got asked about ministry, he wasn't interested in in pursuing ministry. And uh, in a in a letter to his friend, he says, "You inquire if I never think about preaching. I answer, I do. But I always come to the conclusion that preaching is not my office, which I find great comfort in that. That here's brought us this well known homiletician has shaped uh, Baptist preaching for for generations, and yet he he comes to the conclusion that his his, his ultimate goal, his ultimate gifting is not preaching. And yet uh, he, he was uh, he was in another meeting and A.M. Poindexter was preaching and calling calling the young men there to surrender to ministry. And it was in in that moment that brought us surrendered to ministry and decided to follow in the call of ministry, decided to, to pursue higher education at the Uni- University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And so he, he does his education there, graduates with, with his undergraduate degree, graduates with his, his graduate degree in classics. So he studies uh, ancient languages, takes, of course, you know, common courses, uh, mathematics, moral philosophy, uh, language classes. He meets uh, a, a girl named Maria Harrison, uh, Gessner Harrison, taught ancient languages at the University of Virginia, and Broadus actually marries Dr. Harrison's daughter. So they, they fall in love. They're married, and they they launch out after they're married. Uh, they they launch out and Broadus begins to teach. Um, and as he's teaching at, at the house, um, at a schoolhouse, um, some people, you know, there, there's some debate as to to why he doesn't go straight into ministry. He's called to ministry, has the education. Why doesn't he go in, into into ministry. But Broadus says he was in no hurry to assume the heavy responsibilities of the pastorate. And so uh, he gets married, continues to teach. And then ultimately he's offered a professorship at the University of Virginia. And he's offered a pastorate at Charlottesville Baptist Church. So he saw an opportunity there to, to do two things that he's passionate about at this point. Teaching. You remember he graduates from high school tutors and teaches uh, secondary education. Then he goes to Virginia and gets an education, feels called to ministry. And so teaching and preaching are both a passion for him. And there, there in Charlottesville, he has a chance to do both, to teach at the university, to pastor the church. And so he does both of those things for a while. And ultimately, the, the pastorate grew too demanding for him. And so he resigned from the university and threw himself into ministry there at the church. And so brought us by all accounts, planned on being a pastor. So that 1853, this move from University of Virginia and Charlottesville Baptist Church to exclusively focusing on Charlottesville Baptist Church is kind of a defining point in his career, it seems, as if he's moving away from education and moving into moving into church ministry. Now, of course, the, the providence of God can be seen later on because God has been shaping and preparing Broadus to do what needs to be done in Southern Baptist educational uh, cir- circles, and, and that's to, to teach uh, young men to preach the Bible and to rightly interpret the Word of God. And so uh, several years go by, and Broadus is pastoring the church and serving there. He, he goes back and does some uh, chaplaincy work at University of Virginia, and so— He's serving in the church, and then something happens that that completely redirects his life once again. So Broadus is teaching, preaching, moves away from the teaching, focuses on preaching, and then education comes knocking at the door again. He gets asked to participate in uh, Southern Baptist efforts to establish a seminary. So at this point, we're talking uh, early to mid-1850s, there is no Southern Baptist seminary. And so um, Southern Baptist leaders start talking about establishing a seminary. And uh, in 1857, at the annual convention meeting, um, they they develop a committee on the plan of organization for a seminary that 
that committee's chaired by James Pettigrew Boyce. We'll, we'll talk about him a little bit later on. Um, but the, the purpose of that committee was to propose the seminary's curriculum, its confession of faith, and its plan of government. And so Broadus serves on this committee. He's the one who, who proposes the seminary's curriculum. He models it, uh, an elective system after uh, the University of Virginia, which is where he'd studied. And so he helps he helps put together this plan to start a seminary um, Basil Manley Jr. wrote the Abstract of Principles, which serves as the seminary's confession of faith, and uh, the and it, it sought to bind the seminary to evangelical Baptist orthodoxy. Uh, I can talk about that a little bit more in a little while if you guys would like. But that confession of faith is really built on kind of the Charleston stream of thought and those Baptistic confessions. Um, so Basil Manley Jr. writes it. Other guys come in and they have this discussion, and they of course they consider the Second London Baptist uh, confession. They can they consider the Philadelphia Philadelphia Confession, the New Hampshire Confession, all of those things shape Basil Manley Jr., James P. Boyce, John Broadus, as they talk about the, the, the orthodox beliefs that they desire to promote in the seminary. And so after, after finishing their plans for the seminary, Broadus kind of steps away and they talk about selecting faculty members to teach at the seminary and Unbeknownst to Broadus, they elect him to serve as professor of New Testament interpretation and preaching. And so he, when they first offer him the job or approach him, he was reluctant to leave the church. Um, he didn't want to join the upstart seminary. He deliberated for days, consulted friends. His church um, sent him a paper telling him, uh, describing all the negative things that would happen if he accepted it. But uh, again, he, he felt called to that church. And so he initially declined the offer. He wrote to Boyce and said, I just, I dare not go away. And so... When Broadus declined the position, some of the other guys that were lined up, E.T. Winkler, uh, backed out as well, and Poindexter, um, if you remember, was the one who preached when Broadus surrendered to ministry. Um, he was supposed to be general manager. He backed out as well. And so the seminary wasn't able to open in 1858 when it was supposed to. But Boyce kept pressing, wrote to Broadus again, and eventually Broadus agrees. And he writes to Boyce and he says this, with much difficulty and much distress, I have at length reached a decision. I tremble at the responsibility of the thing either way and hesitate to write words which must be irrevocable. But if elected, I'm willing to go. May God graciously direct and bless. And if I have erred in judgment, may he overrule to the glory of his name. And so Broadus says, I'm, I'm willing to accept this position. And if it's a wrong decision, I trust that God is able to sovereignly overrule this for his own glory. And I think history will, goes on to show that Broadus did not err in his judgment. The seminary that he founded continues to train men for gospel ministry. Uh, it, as Austin said, I did my doctoral work at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the first seminary that was established by Southern Baptists. And so Broadus preaches his last sermon in August of 18, 1859. The seminary opens. He teaches preaching and New Testament interpretation. And there were 26 students that first year. And uh, from from 1859 to Broadus's death in 1895, Broadus threw himself wholeheartedly into serving that institution. Um, the beginning years were, were rough. Obviously, the, the Civil War broke out in 1861. So 61 to 65, uh, the seminary closed in 62 because uh, they were unable to secure exempt status for students training for ministry. So many, many pastors were exempt from from military duties. But um, the, the those who were training for ministry, they, they tried to get an exemption for them and were unable to do so. And so the the, the seminary. uh closed temporarily. And during that time, during the Civil War period, Broadus uh, served as a pastor uh, and also served as a chaplain in the Northern Army of Virginia, which is where uh, Robert E. Lee was was leading. Um, and so Broadus does ministry there. After the Civil War, they go back uh, to, to Greenville, South Carolina, which is where the, the, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was founded, was in Greenville, South Carolina. So they go back there and they they open up the seminary again. And of course, uh, they, they face some challenges just to be quite frank. Um, Broadus described the atmosphere. He said the prospect was sufficiently discouraging. The similar seminary practically had nothing. A large part of the subscriptions for endowed 
for in, for endowment had, as we have seen, been paid in Confederate money and invested in Confederate bonds, and so it had become an utter loss. And so in those early early years and during the Civil War, they received funding, but it was in Confederate money. And as, as the Union forces defeated the Confederate army, that money became useless. And so in spite of that, they decided to press on. And Broadus famously remarked in a meeting, suppose we quietly agreed that the seminary may die, but we'll die first. And so you see in that his commitment to this seminary and to training young men for gospel ministry. And so the seminary reopens in 1865 and brought us again, serves until his death in 1895. And so during his time there, you know, he teaches New Testament interpretation. He teaches preaching, writes his treatise on the preparation and delivery of sermons, um, which uh, ironically uh, was was derived from lecture notes for one blind student. He had one student who was blind and was unable to read. And so Broadus says, I tried to lay out a somewhat complete course and give it to him in lectures. And those lectures that Broadus prepared for this one student who was blind and couldn't read ultimately became his famous textbook on preaching, a treatise on the preparation and delivery of sermons. And so uh, again, he, he serves at Southern, delivers uh, lectures on the history of preaching, uh, writes his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, uh, writes on, on the life of Jesus, serves as seminary president in 1888. His, his friend, uh, James P. Boyce, dies. James P. Boyce served as the first president of, of Southern Seminary. And so Boyce dies, Broadus uh, takes his place, fills his position as president, and serves as president until his death in 18, 1895. And so uh, that's kind of a a rough sketch of his life, starting from childhood education to his involvement in the seminary, his writing ministry, serving as president, and ultimately passing away in, in 1895. Brother, that was awesome. I'm so encouraged to hear about this uh, this man's ministry. And you mentioned some of the people that were influential in his life during that uh, biographical sketch, particularly his family, you said. Uh, can you uh, run it back and go a little bit more in depth about some of the people that were influential in the life of uh, John Albert Broadus and uh, who were his friends and colleagues during this time? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So I, I pulled my punch a little bit there because I want to spend a little bit of time talking about James P. Boyce. But before I do that, um, I mentioned his parents, his family, um, Broadus, uh, his, his son-in-law talks about him sitting at the fire in the evenings as a child and just talking to his dad and his dad talking to him like like he was talking to another grown man. And so his, his dad really talked up to him and not down to him. And so his dad in those conversations shaped him. His sister helped teach him and tutor him. His mom loved him. And so the family dynamic there was strong. Uh, Broadus loved his family and had positive things to say about them. And so they were definitely formative in his life as a young man. Talk about his friends. Um, really, some of the closest friends that Broadus has are the guys who established Southern Seminary with him. And so James, James Pettigrew Boyce, William Williams and Basil Manley Jr. Um, are the three guys, along with Broadus, who founded the, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1859 in, in Greenville, South Carolina. And ultimately, it moves to, to Louisville, Kentucky, following the Civil War. And so uh, those guys are close to him. Out of those guys, uh, Boyce was the closest. So, so Broadus and Boyce are, are virtually inseparable from, from the time they, they meet in the mid 1850s and begin serving together. Broadus talks about, about going to serve at the seminary and says that one of the biggest reasons that he's going, one of the things that he's most anticipating is developing a, a deeper friendship with boys who he says, I've already fallen in love with you and consider you a dear friend and I'm looking forward to serving alongside of you. So Boyce, outside of his family, Boyce is Broadus's closest friend. And so um, definitely plays a, a major impact or a major role in and Broadus's life, and when when Boyce dies, Broadus is devastated. And there, there are people in Broadus's life, in reflecting on him, who say that Broadus was never the same after Boyce passed away. And so, you think from 1859 to 1888, almost a span of 30 years, Boyce and Broadus are co-laborers, they're friends, um, and, and so they develop quite the bond. 
And then another, an, one kind of final thing, I think this will kind of transition us to, to the next portion of this discussion is some of the people that, that brought us taught and influenced uh, also had, had, a, had a reverse impact on him. Uh, slide in a little known fact here. So Broadus was the pastor of Charlottesville Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. And during his ministry there, uh, Lottie Moon was converted and baptized. Broadus is the one who baptized the, the famous um, Southern Baptist missionary, Lottie Moon. And so um, Broadus obviously through her ha- had an impact um, around the world. And then another young man that was uh, converted and, and uh, or uh, claimed to be converted because based on his later trajectory, I- I'm not sure that he was regenerate, was a young man named Crawford Howell Toy, um, who, who Broadus loved very much, saw potential in, spent time with, and ultimately who, who departed from the faith. And so um, just kind of a tragic circumstance or situation there in the life of, of Broadus. So thank you for, for fleshing out Boyce and his relationship with Boyce as well as his family. I think that's a good note to, to just emphasize that, that one's family can have great influence on the rest of their life as well as one's close friends. You mentioned Crawford Toy at the end, and, and our next question has to do with what is sometimes called the Toy Controversy. What, what was the Toy Controversy, and how was Brodus or Broadus involved and affected by it? Yeah, so the the toy controversy uh, was a controversy at this seminary. Um, y- you could even say that that toy was the first. Uh, depending on which side of the theological spectrum you're on, is either the 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 first major theological error. So you have the first heretic, or as some liberals or moderates would say, you have the first martyr that toy is treated wrongly. But uh, essentially, toy. Um, in, in in a nutshell, Toy embraces higher criticism and Darwinian evolution, and he's he's a at that point he's a professor at Southern Seminary and begins to teach some of the young men there those things. And ultimately, uh, he, he resigns and, and leaves his position to seminary. But uh, to to back it up a little bit, I mentioned earlier that that Toy was converted or, or claimed to be converted and baptized by by John Albert Broadus at Charlottesville Baptist Church. When Broadus was initially asked to go and the church sent the letter asking him not to go, you remember I mentioned that in the biographical portion, Crawford Howell Toy's name was on that letter. Toy signed that letter talking about the detriment to the spiritual vitality of that congregation if Broadus were to leave. And so Broadus leaves and goes to Greenville, South Carolina to teach. And after a year, Crawford Howell Toy joins Broadus at the seminary. So C.H. Toy goes to, to Southern Seminary, attends classes there, and the, the, the first year of his studies, he lives with Broadus. So Broadus opens up his home and welcomes Crawford Howell Toy into his home. And, and so from, from a from a pastor to to member, church member, and then from a professor to to a student, there's a close bond between John Albert Broadus and Crawford Howell Toy. So so following uh following his education at Southern Seminary, uh Toy wants to become a missionary, and uh, he's unable to do so because of the Civil War. So after the Civil War, he goes overseas. He goes to Germany and studies in Germany. And uh, when he comes back to the United States, he teaches Greek for, for a little bit at Furman University. And then he's offered a position at, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary to teach alongside John Broadus. And as he's teaching um, there, he delivers when he when they first hire him. They he delivers a uh, uh, inaugural address called the claims of biblical interpretation on Baptists. And in that, there, there's some debate among scholars here. There's been a couple of dissertations written on this, but but in my estimation, Toy seems to hold an orthodox position concerning biblical inspiration. Now, again, there, there's some disagreement, but in my reading of the address, I think I think he holds to an orthodox position. Uh, Although some have argued that that his methodology was unorthodox and that the seeds of liberalism were there, 
Um, but regardless of where you come down, it's clear that by 1876, uh, in his lecture notes, Toya has begun to espouse uh, Darwinian evolution, German higher criticism. And so uh, he, he, he suggests that the first two chapters of Genesis, for example, provide separate and contradictory creation accounts. Um, he, he believes that Abraham was taught monotheism from an existing human source in Chaldea uh, rather than, than uh, Genesis 12 and, and the call from God. Rejects the view that Isaiah is the sole author of the book bearing his name. Rejects the historical prophet Daniel as the author of the book of, of Daniel. And so he, he, he starts employing his historical critical method and finds discrepancies and inaccuracies uh, throughout Old Testament narratives and in these uh, historical accounts. And so Toy doesn't see this as a problem. He, he's teaching this. Um, but other professors start to become aware uh, of what he's teaching. There's some personal correspondence that goes on. Boyce and Broadus both reach out to him. Um, Boyce tells Broadus in a letter uh, in 1876, he says, I, in a, in a postscript to a letter to Toy, I broke out in a gentle remonstrance and earnest treaty on inspiration. And so Boyce asked Broadus to reach out to Toy because he knew they were close. And so Broadus reaches out and tries to, to convince him that he's wrong and to stop teaching evolution, to stop teaching German higher criticism and higher critical views. And, and for a little while, Toy attempts to do that. But ultimately, you know, he finds it impossible to leave those things out. And so Toy tenders his resignation thinking because he's getting pressure uh, from from Broadus and Boyce. He tenders his resignation thinking, and in his resignation letter to the trustees of the seminary, he lays out his argument as to what he believes about divine inspiration, and he thinks he's going to be able to argue his way out of it, that the seminary trustees will reject his letter of resignation, and he'll be able to continue teaching there. And so he's kind of blind to a certain degree, to the severity of his views. And when the trustees get his resignation letter and they read his defense of inspiration, they, they reject his views and they accept his resignation. And so Toy is dismissed from serving as professor of uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so that, that's not the end of the story. So, so Toy leaves the seminary. Broadus and Boyce are both heartbroken. They go to see him off um, after he, he's uh, been released. They go to see him off. And the the story goes that Boyce puts his arm, puts one arm around Toy and then extends his other arm and says, I would give this arm for you to go back to where you were five years ago and stay there. And so Broadus in one of his journals talks about losing the the jewel of, of, of our learning. We've lost our jewel of learning, our beloved and noble brother, the pride of the seminary. And so Broadus took pride in Toy and his education and is heartbroken about, about his de essentially departure from the faith. And so at that point, um, he's, he's still holding to spiritual truth in scripture, but denying the historical accuracy of events. But, but as time progresses, it becomes clear that Toy departs further and further from the faith he once espoused. Um, Toy ultimately goes to teach at Harvard and he, he serves as the uh, Hancock professor of Hebrew and other Oriental languages and Dexter lecturer on biblical history at Harvard. And he does that uh, until the, the end of, of his life. And there he, he moves to basically Unitarian Universalism. And then towards the, the end of his, his life, it seems like he, he departs from the church altogether. And so the controversy as it relates to Broadus especially, is, is that Broadus was formative in Toy's life, was his pastor, served as a professor, lived with him, loved him, refers to him as our jewel of learning. And then, then when he departs, Broadus doesn't immediately come out with a strong public statement condemning Toy. And so because of that, there are scholars who argue that, that Broadus was sympathetic of Toy's views, that maybe Broadus didn't have or didn't hold to a high view of Scripture. And uh, I have a chapter on th this whole um, controversy in my dissertation, but I, I, a careful reading of Broadus will reveal that not only did Broadus hold to a high view of Scripture, but he also addressed many of the errors that Toy was promoting. 
As a matter of fact, many of the passages that Toy uses to support his views when Broadus several years later preaches a sermon on, uh, on the Bible, when he preaches that sermon at the annual Southern Baptist Convention, he addresses the passages that, that Toy has used to deny divine inspiration. And so the, the sermon is called Three Questions as to the Bible. It's preached in 1883 and, and brought us in that passage, takes a, a high view of Scripture, defends the doctrine of inspiration, affirms the full inspiration of Scripture, and addresses many of the, many of the errors that, that Toy makes. And so... Uh, I think it's clear that Broadus held to a high view of Scripture. And even later on, when you read his uh, catechism, a catechism of Bible teaching for, for younger kids, he has very strong statements on the inspiration of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, that neither testament contains errors, that the entire Bible is the Word of God and free of error. And so uh, the, main, the main controversy, though, has to deal with Crawford Toy and the, the, the creeping nature of German higher criticism and evolutionary theory working their way into the first Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and then the response to that professor who's gone off the rails. But as it relates to Broadus, I think Broadus's response demonstrates and his later writings demonstrate a high view of Scripture that he's committed to the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, even though I know that term is, is a bit anachronistic in this context. He, he claimed that the Bible is without error, what we would term inerrancy, and then the full authority of Scripture, that Scripture is authoritative and should guide and govern how Christians live. So uh, that, that's a, a bit of a rundown of the toy controversy. Well, let's switch gears a little bit as we've been discussing the toy controversy. Uh, we've discussed Charles Haddon Spurgeon on the Covenant podcast multiple times. Uh, what were Broadus's thoughts on Charles Spurgeon? So, so Broadus was a was, was a preaching professor, and so he appreciated good preaching. And uh, so, it's interesting. I'll make a, a small digression here that that Spurgeon was not always favorably favorably viewed in America. There have been several articles that are written on um, slaveholders in the South and their views of Spurgeon because Spurgeon was an outspoken abolitionist, and so he wasn't always welcome. But as it relates to Broadus, uh, Broadus uh, would affirm uh, Spurgeon's uh, oratorical skill and his preaching, um, believed that he was a, a, a uh, a great preacher would would categorize him, describe him as a great preacher, and um, what was when he visited uh, Britain was taken by uh, visited one of one of Spurgeon's services and was taken by uh, Spurgeon's preaching, and so um, Broadus was was thoroughly impressed with with Spurgeon and his and his ministry there. Well, thank you for that. I, I recalled reading in one of the biographies, I believe it was actually Charles Spurgeon's biography by Nettles that, that Broadus had made comments about about Spurgeon. So I, thank you for your insight on that. Um, as you've mentioned several times, uh, John Bron Broadus is known most for his work on preaching as well as his, his commentary on Matthew. How would you describe his hermeneutic method and his approach to preaching? Yeah, that that's uh, that's a great question, uh, a big question. So I'll try not to not to swallow up all our time here, uh, but but generally, I would say his his uh, hermeneutical methodology was a uh, grammatical historical approach to the text that that also recognized the the centrality of Christ in all of Scripture. And so Broadus trained in the classics he has in his uh, preaching textbook. He has a section on biblical interpretation, and he lays out um, some principles for, uh, for, for interpretation. But even, even before you, you think about the principles he actually employs when he's interpreting the text, I think some of the things uh, that, are, that are worth noting are his presuppositions. So the, what, what undergirded his hermeneutic? Well, it was a high view of scriptures, as I mentioned a second ago. Um, he believed that it was able to, that he believed that interpreters were able to discern the meaning of the text, that, that the meaning wasn't subjective or dependent on the reader. Um, he, he believed um, in, in 
the spiritual, the importance of the spirituality in the life of the interpreter. And, and that is to say that the spiritual man is able, you know, first Corinthians two, the spiritual man is able to, to discern the things of God. Um, and, and so he, he notes that there's a, a spiritual component to biblical interpretation without the illumination of the spirit it's impossible for us to rightly see and understand and, and obey scripture. And then I mentioned this a second ago, I would classify his, his hermeneutic as a, uh, grammatical historical hermeneutic, but with the caveat that he understood that Jesus Christ was the central figure of Scripture. Uh, in his catechism, uh, he asked the question, who is the central figure of, of the Bible history? And he answers, the central figure of the Bible history is Jesus Christ, the hope of Israel, the Savior of mankind. And so he, he later on, uh, he says in a uh, in an article, he says, Jesus Christ himself is not only the chief theme of Scripture, but the guarantee of its authority, the interpreter of its meaning. And then later on in another in another sermon, he says, the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament are never half understood except as they are seen in light of Christ Jesus. They all pointed forward to Christ Jesus. They all found their fulfillment, the key to their interpretation in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament history is not merely a history of some wandering patriarchs and of a strange wayward people of wonderful powers and wonderful propensities to evil. It is not merely a history of Israel. The Old Testament is a history of redemption, of God's mightiness and mercies, and of a chosen nation all along toward the promised long look for time when God's son should come to be the savior of mankind. We cannot understand the Old Testament except we read it and it's bearing upon Christ as fulfilled in him. Just a, a strong statement from him. And so I would say there, there's an emphasis on the grammar of the text, the historical background, uh, the context, which, which, uh, Broadus talks about the the logic of the text, the, the logical context. Um, and so those things are all important. But Broadus says, before we even dive into those, that we have to understand that Jesus is a central figure, that we can't understand the Old Testament scriptures unless we view them in light of Christ because they point towards him. And so uh, I would I would say it's a grammatical historical hermeneutic with the caveat that he understood everything culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's a, a grammatical historical slash Christ-centered interpretation of the text. And so the hermeneutical principle, so I'll say those things are his presuppositions. A high view of scripture, right? The spirituality of the interpreter, the 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 centrality of Christ as, as we engage in interpretation. And then as far as practical principles for interpretation goes, Broadus says we should, we should interpret grammatically. He lists these in multiple places, but they're in his treatise on the preparation and delivery of sermons. He says we should interpret grammatically, logically, historically, figuratively, allegorically, and consistently. And so Grammatically, he's talking about the language of the text, the syntax, the structure, what Kaiser would call verbal analysis. We're looking at words, their meanings, how they relate to one another. Uh, then when he talks about scripture should be interpreted logically, he's not saying reasonably or rationally, oh, even though I think Broadus would affirm those things. Um, he's saying that, that we should consider the logical connection, what comes before it, what comes after it. And so what modern interpreters would say context, Broadus calls logic. How does it fit in contextually? Then historically, he's talking about the historical background of the text. As I'm coming to the text, I'm looking at the language of the text itself. I'm looking at the context, what's surrounding it. I'm looking at the historical background of the text. So so um, who wrote it? When was it written? What issues is it addressing? Are there any historical elements that, that um, are difficult to understand because uh, they don't exist anymore? And so they're historical artifacts that existed or things were done differently then than they are now. Pay attention to those things. Then he talks about number four, figurative interpretation. And so Broadus affirms literal interpretation generally. He says generally you, you want to take a, a, a sh not a literalistic, but a, a literal interpretation of the text. Um, what is what is it saying? But if the text is using figurative language, we need to make sure that, that we're not interpreting a figurative text literally. And so having an awareness of, of the genre and figures of speech was important. Then he talks about allegorical interpretation, which um, not directly related to Broadus. I, I could get, uh, I could get 
distracted on this as well, but uh, our, our tendency in our modern context is to reject allegory altogether. And yet there are certain instances in scripture where I think uh, an allegorical interpretation is uh, is acceptable or maybe even necessary. And I talked about this with Keech a little bit um, the last time I was on talking about Keech and Broadus, but Keech emphasizes a one-to-one correspondence in the parables. And when you look at Matthew 13 and the way Jesus interprets those parables, there is a one-to-one one correspondence, the, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus walks through because the disciples don't understand. So he walks through those parables and gives them a one-to-one correspondence. The seed is the word of God. The sower is the son of man. The field is the world. The evil one is the devil. The, the harvesters are the angels. The, the field uh, or the, the, the harvest is the end of the age. And so he gives a one-to-one, this represents that and interprets it in, in a way that we would say is, is allegorical. Or even Galatians 4, um, Paul deals with uh, uh, Sarah and Hagar and two mountains, and it's an allegorical interpretation. So Broadus says, listen, there are certain times where allegory is is acceptable, and we need to recognize uh, allegorical texts and interpret them properly. And then the last thing he says uh, is six principles. So grammatical, logical, historical, figurative, allegorical. And number six is consistently. We should interpret text consistently. And what he's talking about there is making sure that that we consider all of scripture. And so again, I, I can't really talk about canonical interpretation uh, without sounding uh, anachronistic and importing uh, more recent terms into older discussions. But what he's getting at is um, Scripture interpreting scripture. Uh, he, he wasn't a fan of the phrase analogy of faith, but that, that's what he's talking about. Uh, he, he says that it's derived from a misunderstanding of the Greek in Romans 12, 6. So he doesn't want to use the phrase. But what he's talking about is a concept associated with that, that we interpret in accordance with. Here's Broadus's words. We interpret in accordance with and not contrary to the general teachings of scripture. And so we want to approach the text with all of the Bible in view and making sure that we're interpreting this text in a way that aligns with and doesn't contradict other teachings of Scripture. And so again, in in summary, I would say his approach is grammatical historical with a strong Christ-centered bent to it. And so that that flows over into his preaching. When Broadus preaches, you see him trying to pay attention to the detail of the text. He's going to to, to define Greek and Hebrew words. He's going to talk about uh, context, the logical relation of the passage he's preaching to what comes before it, what comes after, and maybe even the book as a whole. And then you definitely see that in his uh, desire to preach Christ in almost every sermon uh, of his that I've read. And I've read all of his published sermons and 173 unpublished sermon manuscripts. And virtually every sermon brought us is seeking to proclaim Christ, his work, his person, his work, and then call sinners to repentance. And so um, you, you see that shaping his his preaching as he tries to deal with the text, preach from a biblical text, and from that text, point people to Jesus Christ, the hope of sinners. Well, uh, thank you for giving us Broadus's hermeneutic. Uh, I, I do want to put in a quick plug for you. Uh, in this uh, fall edition of the Journal for Baptist Theology and Ministry, uh, Dr. Bumpers wrote an article on a little bit more about uh, Broadus's hermeneutic methodology, and we discussed it a little bit with Keach, and he alluded it to it in that answer. The title of his article is Worse Than Idol or Mysteries of the Gospel, John Albert Broadus and Benjamin Keach on Interpreting and Preaching the Parables of Jesus. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes for more on uh, Broadus's hermeneutic methodology. But let's transition here as we uh, discuss a maybe more loaded question. <laughs> uh, what was Broadus's view on the Confederacy? and slavery, and how should we think through these things, especially in light of uh, some things that are happening nowadays? Man, I appreciate you asking me all the easy questions. <laughs> just want to get that out there. So you, I'm sure that, that you you have uh, noticed that I've talked about um, Broadus being a Virginian, so he's born in Virginia, uh, serves in Greenville, South Carolina, ultimately moves to, to Louisville, Kentucky. Think about Virginia and South Carolina and the background of the Civil War and the role that those places play. 
you know, there's there's some some pretty pretty deep roots to the South and the Confederacy in Broadus's life. Again, a native Virginian teaches in South Carolina and, and ultimately serves as a chaplain in the in the the Northern Army of Virginia, um, which is where uh, Robert E. Lee is 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 serving. And so he is he even preaches a sermon that, that's titled uh, "We Pray for." I think it's it's titled "We Pray for You at Home," but it's a sermon that he preaches to his congregation as the Confederate soldiers are fighting. And in, in the sermon, he makes an allusion. I can't remember the exact terminology that he uses, but, but he's basically arguing that, that his cause, the, uh, not necessarily his cause, but the Southern cause, the Confederacy is the, the right cause. It, it's a righteous cause. And, uh, that, that God ultimately will, um, and they're praying that God will ultimately give them the victory. And so in this situation, uh, Broadus is, is uh, quite frankly, on the, on the wrong side of history, but on the wrong side of Scripture. And so we, we look at Scripture and we see uh, every person is made in the image of God, that men and women are made in the image of God. And so Broadus uh, supports, defends uh, those who are fighting to, to uphold slavery. And it's, it's just flat out wrong. I don't know know how, know how else to say it other than that. And so when I think about Broadus and I think about his legacy, what I, there are two things. One, I don't want to I don't want to attempt to defend him because I think he was wrong on the issue of slavery. I think he was wrong on the issue of the Confederacy. I think he's wrong preaching sermons to defend the Confederate troops. So I want to be clear that I in no way want to defend him there because I think he was wrong. On the flip side of that, I don't want to take any contributions he makes to the field of preaching or New Testament interpretation and say, well, because he advocated or promoted this, there's nothing that we can learn from him. And so I think those are the there are two dangers. One to say, you know, there's nothing that we can learn from this person. He's completely useless because of this grievous sin in his life or to go the other way and say, man, he was great. I love him. He had this one thing. It wasn't a big deal, though, and then promote him as a hero. And so I want to avoid both of those extremes. Don't want to hold him up as, as a sinless uh, a hero because Jesus Christ is the only sinless person um, that, that that we celebrate. So every other, every other man has fallen. And on the flip side, I don't want to say because of this sin, there's nothing that I can learn or or glean from him. And so I guess I would just say one, I think Broadus was wrong on the issue of slavery and, and the South. And on the other side, I think there's a lot that, that contemporary preachers and interpreters can learn from John Broadus as it relates to how to rightly interpret the Bible and how to preach. Thank you for answering our easiest question of the day. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, especially when studying historical figures that we should not go to either extreme and elevate them to a point of sinlessness, but also not relegate them to total uselessness because they were fallen and had severe blind spots, as, as Broadus clearly did on this subject, yeah. as many did during his time. That's right. Um, the... Next question um, is, in my opinion, slightly easier than the last. Um, but what are some practical applications and implications we can draw from Broadus's life and thought? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And uh, yeah, I would affirm that it's an easier question than the last one you just asked. So uh, if, if I'm thinking about Broadus and what can, what can t- contemporary preachers and uh, those serving in ministry, what can they learn from Broadus? Uh, I, one thing is his, his view of scripture. I mentioned this earlier, but one of the things that's worthy of emulation is his commitment to the doctrine of scripture. And so he has a high view of scripture, believes that it is God breathed. It's inspired that the Bible is the word of God. He believes that it contains no errors, so it's true. It's completely true. All of it's true in all the details, not just the major storylines or the big points, but in all the details, the Bible is true. So the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is true. The Bible is authoritative, that it's binding in, in, in doctrine. 
and in practice that the Bible is authoritative. And so I would say that we definitely want to, to emulate him as, as Baptist um, in, in affirming his, his high view of Scripture. Uh, another thing I think is, is helpful is his commitment to, to viewing Scripture in light of Christ, particularly the Old Testament. Him saying that, that the Old Testament is never fully understood apart from Christ is, uh, is important. And so without minimizing the importance of, of a grammatical, historical, literary, and theological analysis of the text— I think it's important for us to understand that the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ. And I think in seeing seeing the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ, what we're doing is not simply following the pattern of broadest. We're following the pattern of Jesus and, and the disciples. And again, I could spend some time here. I won't, I won't jump too deep into it. But in Luke 24, and you can go to John 6, um, when Jesus says, uh, or John 5, you search the scriptures in them, you think you have life, and they are they which testify of me. Then Luke 24, all, oh, you slow of heart to believe all that was written in me and the law and the prophets. Later on, he talks about all that's written in the law of, law of Moses and the prophets and the writings. And so then he opens up their eyes to understand scripture. He's showing them that the Old Testament is about him. And, and when you transition away from the gospels into the rest of the New Testament, what you see is that the, the New Testament apostles viewed the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ. When, when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Joel 2, he quotes Psalm 16, he quotes Psalm 110, and he he he, he applies them to the present moment and the work of Christ and the work of his, of his spirit. And so, I mean, you could go, you could go passage after passage after passage, even, even if you, even if you don't leave the gospels, go back to the gospels, Matthew two, how does Matthew view Hosea 11? He views it Christocentrically. And so you could go through, through all of these old Testament citations, the author of Hebrews, how does he use the old Testament? How does he view the old Testament? Well, he views it Christologically. All of these things are, are, are signs and symbols. All these things are pointing to Christ. Christ is greater than the angels that the old Testament talks about. He's better than Moses. Moses was, was, uh, uh simply a steward. Jesus is a son. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than, than the, the Aaronic priesthood. I mean, he goes on and on about Jesus being better than all of these Old Testament science, but those things finding their culmination fulfillment in Jesus. And so I think when we affirm the, 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 the Christocentricity of Broadus, we're really affirming the teaching of Jesus and, and the disciples. So I think his view of scripture, I think his emphasis on the central role of Christ in interpretation is helpful. I also think, uh, his, uh, and I didn't mention this earlier, but I think his, his, uh, desire to apply the text it is important. Um, he, he sees he sees a relationship between hermeneutics and, and application. That our goal is not simply to find out what it means, but also to bring it to bear. And he says that, that one of the things we should seek to do is show the hearer how the truths of the sermon, which are from the biblical text, show the hearer how the truths of the sermon apply to him. And so he's seeking to uh, apply the biblical text to the lives of his listeners and his interpretation and in his preaching. And so I think one of the goals that we should have is those who study the word of God is, is consistent application that we consistently apply the text to our own lives. And then those that we're discipling, those to whom we're preaching, we're seeking to bring the text to bear on their lives. So, I mean, I, I could, I could go on for a while, but if I, if I can only list three, it'd probably be those three big takeaways. Um, the, you know, the, the, the high view of scripture, the central role of Christ in interpretation and, and the importance of applying the Bible to the lives of ourselves and to those who hear us. And, and of course, uh, the, the one that I would say, and I guess I'm going to give you a fourth one, it would be a, an emphasis on preaching, brought us understood the importance of preaching. And again, the reason I, I'm not going to highlight or, or labor that point is because when most people talk about or think of Broadus, they think about his treatise and his defense of preaching and even his his lectures on the history of preaching. Broadus understood and elevated preaching, uh, the task of preaching and corporate worship serving is in very much in a reformational sense. You know, they talk about the, the two marks of the genuine church from the Reformation or is expanded to, to three marks, the right teaching of the word, the proper administration of, of the sacraments or the ordinances, and then Ultimately, you know, it, it expands the church of discipline, but right there in, in, in the Reformation, there's this principle, the centrality of preaching, the right teaching of the right preaching of the word of God and broadest understood historically the role that preaching played in, in accomplishing the, the mission of God and, and 
the central role that preaching played in, in corporate worship in a local church. So, uh, and some of that flows out of his, his, uh, his time in ministry. And then some of that flows out of his time training pastors to preach the word, but you see his, his commitment to the importance of preaching. We've mentioned uh, that Dr. Bumpers did his doctoral research on Broadus, and we mentioned an article uh, that he worked on with uh, Broadus' hermeneutic methodology. Dr. Bumpers, what are some works by or about Broadus that you would recommend to our listeners? All right. So uh, there are a couple, I would say, must-reads. Uh, his The only biography that's really ever, ever been written is A.T. Robertson's Life and Letters of John Albert Broadus. And so if you want want to read about Broadus's life and his legacy, I think that's the place to start. I would say that, uh, I mentioned this earlier, A.T. Robertson is John Broadus's son-in-law. And so Robertson was shaped by Broadus, loved Broadus. And so you don't get a lot of, um, man, you don't get a lot of details as far as flaws or weaknesses or disagreements. And so it's not a critical biography in the sense, not, not that critical has to mean negative, but it's not critical in the sense that it's of really seriously evaluating any strengths or weaknesses. It's more just a, a history of his life, uses a lot of, a lot of Broadus's letters um, and correspondence to and from other people. And so I would say that nevertheless, it's the only biography that's been written B&H has a, a, a book on Broadus, John Albert Broadus, A Living Legacy, that's also helpful. But that book is a compilation of essays, and so it's not a, a technical biography. But I would say A.T. Robertson's Life and Letters of, of John Albert Broadus, John, uh, John A. Broadus, A Living Legacy uh, by B&H are, are two biographical works that you'll want to pick up about him. If you're talking about works that he actually wrote um, – his, I mentioned his treatise on the preparation of delivery of sermons. I would say, so there have been four editions of that book. Um, it was first published in 1870, and then uh, E.C. Dargan, who was a pupil of Broadus, edited it in 1898, I believe is when the second edition came out. And then there's an edition by Witherspoon, an edition by Stanfield. And so I would encourage you, if you can get your hands on the original uh, edition, that's the one that you want. Uh, if, you, if you find the second edition by E.C. Dargan, I think that's a good edition. Um, there's still some debate as to whether the, the edition by E.C. Dargan includes material from Broadus's Yale Lectures on Preaching. Um, so Broadus delivered the 1889 Yale Lectures on Preaching, and uh, those were, were actually never published. They've still not been published. They were lost for uh, over 100 years. And so those those have never been published. They they've, have been discovered in the last uh, 20 years, but they've never been published. And so there, there's some debate as to whether those were actually incorporated into the edition by E.C. Dargan. I believe E.C. Dargan claimed that some of those notes made it into the revised edition, but it, it's a, it's a, a good edition. It doesn't depart radically from uh, Broadus's first edition, 1870. But I would say Witherspoon and then Stanfield, they start to move away from uh, from where Broadus was at homiletically, um, rearrange some things, which I think is a problem because his book it is uh, organized around the five classical canons of rhetoric. So invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. Um, so four of those five are are headings for the book. Uh, memory, he doesn't advocate for memory because he 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 promotes extemporaneous preaching. And so I would say any type of, of rearrangement of materials is going to be detrimental to the argument that he's trying to make. So I'd encourage you to pick up the first or second volume. His commentary on the Gospel of Matthew is is solid. And so for a long, I mean, up until the mid 1900s, it was still used at Southern Seminary, and so it's a solid, um, it's a solid work. I think modern interpreters would gain a lot of wisdom from reading it. He has in each section some practical or pastoral uh, hints, and so those things are helpful. He also had um, a gospel. Uh, a commentary on the Gospel of Mark published after he died. Um, that, that's not very long. If I, if you Google um, the Gospel of Mark, John Albert Broadus PDF, uh, chances are uh, it's no longer under copyright. Chances are you can track that down. Probably track track down his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew electronically as well. But but I would say interpreters would benefit from those things. So if you're interested in his preaching, definitely read his his uh, 
his treatise, if you're interested in his hermeneutics and how he interpreted the Bible and really his exegesis, to look at him putting those principles into work, those two commentaries would be a good place to start. And then the last resource that I would say is the biography of Broadus on Boyce. And so so John Broadus wrote a biography on uh, James Pettigrew Boyce. And you can find a lot of historical details in that biography where uh, Broadus talks about Boyce, talks about himself, talks about the founding of the seminary, talks about the toy controversy. And so that that resource would be another good resource. So if you're going to read, read things from Broadus, his preaching textbook, his commentaries on Matthew and Mark, and then his biography of James Pettigrew Boyce. And then if you're going to read about him, uh, A.T. Robertson. Uh, biography and living legacy, which was uh, edited by David Dockery and Roger Duke. Dr. Bumpers, thank you so much for coming on this episode of the Covenant Podcast and sharing with us about John Broadus. Thank you guys so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Well, this episode has been brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. It is, again, a confessional seminary or a confessional Baptist seminary. You can find them at cbtseminary.org, cbtseminary.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.